Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to part two of three of this bumper end of year Q&A podcast. So as you'll know if you've listened to the first part, I asked for questions via Facebook, Twitter, um, email list, uh, my website, that kind of thing. And I've divided all the questions we got up into various sections. So yesterday we looked at teaching questions, Catherine Bunkai questions and questions relating to impact drills. And today we're going to look at the self-defense ones, uh, training ones, uh, teaching children questions and female self-defense questions. So as I mentioned yesterday, I'm, I'm not saying my answers are the definitive answers. I just hope that they're interesting for you to listen to and I hope that they're thought-provoking. Uh, so agree or disagree, I hope that you enjoy uh, listening to the podcast. So tomorrow we'll look at the final part, which will be general karate questions, cross-training questions, questions relating to pressure points and the miscellaneous questions as well. So without further ado, let's start looking at the self-defense questions. Martial arts fun fact 281. Many people think that karate means empty hand. However, in truth, it is an acronym to reflect the changes made when karate was introduced to the Japanese physical education system. The acronym stands for Killing Art Rendered Asinine Through Experimentation. In this section, we'll look at the self-defense questions. And the first one is from Malachi Devlin. He asks, can someone who has not been involved in real situations have credibility when teaching martial arts and self-defense? So that comes up a lot. And I, I think the answer is yes, you can. Um, the argument sometimes made, well, you know, if you've never been there, then you can't teach it. And, and, I, and I can follow the logic of that to a degree. The problem is there comes a point where it's incorrect. Because, um, so if you said, if a guy says, you know, I've been in like a thousand fights, right? And therefore I know what works in real situations. That can be like saying, I want to learn road safety from a guy who's been knocked over a thousand times, but survived every one. So unless that guy's got employment in the security field, the fact that he's had a thousand fights means his awareness and avoidance skills are downright awful. There is something about his personality means he's constantly getting into fights when there was no need to. So you can argue he's not going to be a good self-defense teacher then. The other thing as well with self-defense is there are lots of different kinds of violence and not everyone has experienced every single kind of them, you know. So I have had personal experience of some forms of violence. Uh, I've never been the victim of domestic abuse. I've never been raped and I've never been kidnapped. I've, you know, there's all these kind of things. So I, I can't comment on those things from personal experience, but I'd like to think I still have things I can teach that can help with that, you know. Now, and also, even those that work in the security field, if you've worked as a police officer, then you have experience of violence within that context. It doesn't necessarily flow over that you've got experience in every single context as well. So everyone's experience is limited to some degree and then what we tend to do what we should do the smart people do is we say okay who has had experience in that field and what can i learn from them so we're looking at it objectively and i always liken this to the military what the military do with soldiers is they don't say oh you don't know what you're talking about until we've thrown you into a war zone they say right we've learned these lessons from previous wars the people who have fought these wars have have told us this works and this doesn't therefore we work this into our training we replicate within training what a war is like so we send these soldiers out as fully prepared as we possibly can be so we do the same what we do the same is we say right 
we've looked at what violence is like in the, these various contexts we understand what it's like we've talked to the experts in that that field and we're going to replicate that for you within within training and i think that has has um value because we also need to watch that we're not giving mixed messages as well so on the one hand if you're saying to someone um uh, don't get involved in violence you know you you must avoid violence but on the other hand you're going but we're not going to take you seriously unless you've had lots of real fights that's a mixed message okay so that the 20 something year old male might go all oh, right i'm standing in this community i've got to get involved in lots of real fights so i can say i've been there which undermines the message that we're giving them saying don't be involved in real situations you know so if the worst happens and you've and you're involved in a kind of situation like that and you've got something valuable to say about it as a result then great if you've been employed in that field and you've learned something then then great but we shouldn't be encouraging people inadvertently to go out and get involved in real fights so we take them seriously and they've got credibility what what it what ultimately determines whether they've got credibility or not is 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 what they're teaching good enough right is what they're teaching good enough so for example if you take you know examples of you know people who've had loads of of real life experience so your peter constantine's your jeff thompson's your mark mcyoung's your rory miller's if you, if you look at th- those guys right who had lots of, of real life experience uh, they all feel that they're able to teach people uh, to be better able to defend themselves that none of them are saying uh we can't possibly teach you this you've just got to go out and experience it firsthand so so therefore you know if they're teaching effectively and you're able to uh, learn from them and then uh, competently pass on what they're teaching or their experience has been then you've definitely got credibility because your teaching too will match the real uh, real world so it, it is a complicated one i think our training should always be grounded in reality i don't think that necessarily means that the instructor needs to have had direct real life experience uh, themselves so long as they uh, their training is is, is based upon that and i would go again back to the point is that um you, we can have real life experience in one area it doesn't mean you've got real life experience in all areas so it's it's um uh, a complicated one and above all else particularly that 20 something male you know because uh, when you get i mean i've been that 20 something male so I, i'm not critiquing I I, I I i i invariably got involved in situations when i was younger that i did not need to get involved in i i know that for a fact and looking back as an older man that was dumb it was incredibly incredibly dumb uh, and so so therefore i don't want to encourage people to do anything stupid so i would never say oh unless you've been there you, you can't teach it because what i'm effectively saying to my students is be stupid be absolutely stupid put your life and your liberty at risk it's it's a it's a dumb thing to say so therefore i'm going to say look this is this is the way reality works you know if you look at across the people who had real life experience this is what they're they're, they're telling us this it's consistent therefore this is what your training needs to be involved with if you're teaching along this way these people will look at what you're doing the people who had real life experience will look at what you're doing and go yeah that Okay, so that, that I mean, for me, that that's always you know. So I, I have, I've had real life experience, but not to the degree that others have. So it's always nice to me when the likes of Mark McYoung, who has the real life experience in way in excess of what most have had, you know, it, when Mark looks at my stuff and goes, "Yeah, that that's good." So, so for for me, like, oh, great. Well, if Mark likes it, yeah, I'm 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 happy. You know, what I mean, that, that 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 gives me credibility as well. You know, so. Um, so yeah, I hope that, 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 that answers the question. But uh, above all else, be careful that we're not giving mixed messages because that's not good. That's not good at all. Uh, next question is from uh, Phil, uh, Phil Bourne. He says, uh, what's your, uh, your view on the role, if any, of Kiai in self-protection situations? So, um, so for those who maybe aren't Japanese martial artists, the Kiai 
roughly speaking, is the shout. If we're going to be strict about this, I would say that Kiai isn't the shout, it's the feeling that results in the shout. So that feeling of, of great power, that certainty that your goal is, is, is being achieved, then the Kiai is a result of that feeling. The Kiai is not, um, the shout is not, is not Kiai. Okay. I, I, for my students, I always say if I set off a, 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 an explosion, um, the explosion is Kiai. The noise the explosion makes is not the Kiai. So that would be the difference for me. But if we take it just to mean that, you know, the, the, the loud shout, okay, which, um, which is how most people uh, are probably thinking of it. It's a, it's a double-edged sword for self-protection. So a couple of things where it can be useful for. It can be useful for if you've just dropped a guy, you whack him and you Kiai as you do it, it can break his spirit a little bit and it can make him think, right, I ain't getting back up. I'm not facing that guy. That's a guy who is formidable. It can also send a message to other people. Maybe he's got accomplices. And if you Kiai like that, it can make them hesitate, especially if it's a proper Kiai where it's done in a like an animalistic way. It, it will trigger things in them where they think, I ain't going anywhere near that thing. That thing is a threat. That loud shouty thing that's just dropped my friend i don't want to go anywhere near it so in that view it can help where it can be a problem is the way in which it can perceive by third parties so if they maybe aren't fully aware that you're the good guy in this scenario and maybe they've just turned around to see you drop a guy punch him in the head and scream why you do it if that guy then says, it wasn't me, it was him, the witnesses will say, yeah, it looks like it was him because he was screaming over this guy. Because like it or not, people tend to assume that the person who is winning is the bad guy. Uh, so we need to be mindful of the way our actions are being perceived in self-defense. Uh, that doesn't mean that we think about it um, at the time of action. It means we think about it in training so our instincts are to do things that are likely to be perceived favorably. So if you look at, um, for example, the Pinan Hian DVDs I did, when you watch the Bunkai drills on those, or the Beyond Bunkai DVD, you'll see the Bunkai drills. You'll see I, I do use the Kiai's there, right? So the guy gets dropped, I give him a shot, and there's a loud Kiai. That's giving him a message, stay down. It's also giving anyone else around, stay back. But that's immediately followed by me retreating with my arms up in a passive posture, making it clear that I don't want to fight. I'm not standing to hit him several times where I'm crying. I'm not towering over him with my arms flayed. I'm backing off immediately. So I'm making it very clear I don't want to be here. We, in training as well, we have students just adding the words too as they back off like, don't get up, don't get up, don't hurt me, please stay down, please stay down. You know, that, that kind of thing makes it clear to all witnesses that you are the good guy in this scenario. So I would, I would say that Kiai does have a role, it can intimidate, it can help keep other people back, but we have to be careful because it can be perceived as being uh, aggressive by third parties, and that can cause legal problems for you later on. So if you've used it, you need to make sure it's used as part of your overall escape strategy. You should be escaping anyway, but when you escape, make sure you escape in a way that's, that's passive. Because you can, as I show it at seminars, you can do the exact same physical technique. But if I walk away with my arms splayed and shout something swear words at him and, you know, yeah, that's what you get if you mess with me, I'm going to prison. Right? If I do the exact same thing and back off with, stay down, stay down, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, then again, the perception is going to be that, yeah, this is a guy who doesn't want anything to do with this fight. And that's what I am. So I'm not trying to deceive people. I'm trying to make sure that people accurately perceive the reality of that scenario. So if we're using Kiai, be mindful of it. We don't want to do what you see people do in competition, where they punch in Kiai and they stand there and enjoy their moment of glory. That's not what we want to do. If you're Kiai, you instantly want to back off in a passive way that the instant you've done it for self-protection.
Uh, next question we've got is from uh, Mike Bodie, and he said, uh, we all know the prime importance of awareness in self-defence, but what are the effective ways to teach and practice it, especially for, for teens and adults, or the older ones? See, th- this is the thing, with, with awareness, that's often given lip service. And this is because the martial artists don't really know what to be aware of. So they go, oh, be aware. Well, okay, how do I be aware? And what am I supposed to be aware of? If you're not teaching those two subcomponents, just saying the word be aware is just like saying punch him hard and never teaching them how to punch. It's, it's, a, it's a dumb thing to do. So the first thing we need to do is we need to be aware of the way criminals act and behave, right? So we need, we need to teach that. And we need to do, do drills where people role play that. So they're aware of how criminals will try and set you up with dialogue and deception. We're aware of how criminals will try and op- operate in groups. We need to study the way that crime works. You know, if, if we, and there's lots of information out there. I mean, in the UK, the government's really good at producing statistics on stuff. Um, there's any amount of true crime documentaries and shows. There's any amount of footage of actual events on YouTube. We need to be studying this. You need to know your enemy, as Sun Tzu would say. So that's the first thing. Study that stuff and be, a, uh, be mindful of what we need to be aware of, how people operate, what's going to happen, and then teach that as part of your self-defense scenario drills. When it comes to how to be aware... Uh, we tend to daydream as, as human beings. That, that's a fact. You know, anyone who's meditated know how hard it can be to get your brain to focus on a given task. You know, that monkey mind wants to wander off and do its own thing. Um, so no one can be totally aware of the surroundings 100% of the time, right? So it's, it's being mindful of what we need to be aware of. And, I, and for my students, I liken it to like an antivirus program. So what you've got is you've got this awareness that's generally running in the background. So I'm in front of my computer now as I record this and I know I've got antivirus software on there and I know it's running but there's nothing popping up if an email came through with a bad attachment or there was a link that appeared to a site that might be questionable it flags it up and goes I'm not sure about this but you might want to look at it okay so that, that's the nev- next level up and then I take action based on it okay so that's if you use the Cooper's color codes that's your yellow orange and red right so code white is when your antivirus is switched off we don't want to be there code yellow it's it's running in the background we have no issue issues code orange right there's something you need to be take aware uh, have awareness of now you, there's something that may require your attention you need to formulate your plan now okay red you need to enact your plan now's the time to act right so what one good thing that can be an effective way to do that is uh, and they use this in um, a bodyguard training and uh, evasive driving training as well is to do uh, commentary walking uh, and there's a couple of ways to do this. So I encourage my students to do it too. So when they're on the day-to-day activities, so they say, right, I'm, I've got to, um, let's say I've got some uh, stuff to go to the supermarket for. I've got to, you know, get some eggs and bread, whatever it happens to be. So, right, today I'm going to make this a training exercise. So from the moment I leave my door to the moment I get back, I'm going to run on the assumption that someone is going to attack me during this run. And therefore, I need to be mindful of everything that I do that could contribute towards that attack and, uh, and or likelihood of it or, or um, a successful application of it and uh, any actions that any people take that could be indicative of an, of an attack. So, you, for example, right, I've opened the door, I look outside the door, I can't see anyone around the door, I've scanned the area, it seems secure, I've closed the door, I'm walking towards the car, I'm aware that the, the transitions from uh, person into the car and person out of the car are often a vulnerable area. I'm looking around the car, I can't see anyone around the car, I can't see anything uh, obviously sticking out from underneath the car. I use my keys, I open the door, I'm in the car, I've locked the door so no one can open the door, the windows are shut, my uh, wallets and valuables are not on display, I'm then driving the car, I'm looking, 
anyone trying to box me in on this junction? Does, does it? Uh, I'm keeping a, a safe distance from the car in front. So on and so on and so on. I park my car up. I'm going to park my car up here so I have adequate escape routes. I'm going to park my car in a well lit area. And you're running through this in your head. You're just doing this commentary all the time, right? I get out the car. That person's walking towards me. Why are they walking towards me? Did they look like a threat? Can I see what their hands are doing? You just do this in your head, right? You can do it as an exercise with students, where students do it, do it aloud, right? But generally, that's better done in scenarios, not in public, because in public, it just, <laughs> you seem like a pair of lunatics, right? It freaks people out. Uh, so that's one you can do, right? And, and, and again, you do this often enough, and you encourage your students to do that like once a week. After a while, this you don't need to verbalize it quite so much. It just fades into the background, and you're constantly doing it. The other thing that uh, I advise can be uh, an interesting exercise is to uh, pretend to be uh, a criminal. So you say, right, okay, this time I'm going to go on, on a walk to do whatever I'm going to do, and I'm going to look for the most attractive target. If I was going to mug someone and steal their money, who would I be mugging? Right, so what you do is you, 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 you go about your day-to-day business, but you play that role. Okay, is that person a good target? Do they look switched on? What about them? Can I see any valuables? Where are the security cameras at? Where are the police at here? Is there anyone who might be coming to the raid? Could I escape from here? Is there a chance that people would recognize me if I did this? So you play the role of criminal when you do it. And, and again, this takes us back to the know your enemy thing. It gets you to think like they think. You know, so doing that one on occasion again can also help. So, so they would be the key, key things, I think. And obviously it's a huge topic, but you need to study what to be aware of. And that's something that needs talked about in the dojo. You need to recreate scenario drills in the dojo. So people again have um, recreated experiences of, of what to be aware of. And then the commentary walking, you know, just going about your day-to-day business, imagining that, yeah, okay, I'm going to be attacked, who's it going to be and when. And then also doing that thing of, okay, I'll think like a criminal. Doing those exercises, like say once a week would be reasonable, okay? But after a certain point in time, what you'll find is you do it automatically. You know, you'll be going about your day-to-day business and suddenly that kind of part of your brain just says, hang on, what's that person? Or, you know, they're acting a bit suspiciously. It just kind of flags up. So um, that, that that's a key thing. Do it, do it regularly, do it often, and, and and maintain that habit so that, again, it becomes a, a natural part of your, your day-to-day existence. So the next question is from Stan Roderick, where he said, Martial arts physical techniques are recorded in their cutters and forms, but the most important parts of keeping ourselves safe are missing. Uh, just to interject there, I wouldn't say they're missing. I, I think that the cutter is an appropriate way to record physical technique, but it's not an appropriate way to do verbal de-escalation or awareness and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so he goes, uh, were the aspects of self-protection, awareness, uh, reading body language, etc., passed down verbally or just taken as common sense? And he says that's something that's missing in, in today's society. So I, I don't think we can write it off as common sense, uh, but they were definitely passed down uh, verbally. And we can see this in the writing of the uh, the past masters. So the, the, it's not that they're the not in the cutter. So to use an example, right? Funakoshi said that he only ever got told well done uh, once by Itosu in all the time he trained with him. There was only one time that Itosu said, you know, I'm really happy with what you've just done there, Funakoshi. And the story is that Funakoshi was on his way to his father-in-law's house and he was taking some cakes, rice cakes, that his wife had uh, baked for her father, prepared for her father. On the way there, Funakoshi gets mugged by a, a group of, I think it's three guys, if I remember the story correctly, who want the rice cakes. Funakoshi gives the rice cakes up, no question at all, right? Just gives them up. He's later telling this story to Itosu. So Itosu listens to the story and then says to him, okay, so you gave them over, all right? 
said, but when you got to your father-in-law's house, then you had no gift. So what did you do then? He said, oh, he said, I, I explained the situation to my father-in-law and I, and I uh, lit some incense on the family altar as a sign of respect. And he said, he told her, said, well done. And Funakoshi says, this is one of the, you know, the, the only well dones I ever got from him, right? So we can see there that Itosu is obviously saying to him, "Well done, you avoided that situation," you know, and, and that's what I, I, I would I would like to see. And if you look at the writings of thinking of like Funakoshi and Utsuka and Mabuni and Motobu, they, they all emphasize this idea of of being aware. Uh, Itaman does as well. So it, it was taught as part of of karate in the past. We can see that in the record. Obviously, it's not in the kata because a, a, a kata that had verbal de-escalation would just be you talking to yourself, and that's not realistic either you know for recording physical movement and the physical side of it it's useful but Stan rightly points out we need these other things and these were passed down verbally and were practiced as part of the karate of the past and they were certainly not just taken as common sense because they're not that common you know you you need to be um, educated on these things I think so now we have two uh, related questions. Paul uh, Leonard says, uh, Hi Ian, any tips on drills for teaching realism in the dojo? Are you training partners using aggressive, abusive language, threatening body posture, etc.? These type of things don't come naturally to most karateka as we're generally nice people and train in nice, safe environments with friends. And, and Tim Ide has a, a similar question. He said, I'd like to hear your take on how to train for the intention of harming the opponent. In a self-protection scenario, your attacker has the intention to harm you, but we as nice karateka don't want to hurt anybody. How do you overcome this mindset to be able to react and to do whatever is necessary in such circumstances? I haven't got any idea of how to teach that to my students without hurting one another. I don't want to lose students because they're great people. You know, these are really good points, right? Most martial arts are nice people. So, so the idea of physically harming someone may not come naturally to them. And, and there may have been a lot of conditioning that works against that as well. Uh, in my upbringing, I, I was raised with a strict set of morals and I was raised with a very clear idea of what was right and wrong, but uh, fighting was never down as wrong. You know, if it was something that needed doing, then that was okay. You know, I mean, that, that was the point. So I, I never had that con- conditioning, if you like, that, that, that fighting or defending yourself was bad. You know, if I, if I fought to defend myself or fought to defend a family member, then that was fine. If, if, if I fought um, to hurt somebody, then that was not fine. You know what I mean? So that, that was, there was a way. So, um, but I understand that, you know, p- people do have this uh, social and, um, and conditioning and, and it can, uh, can be an issue. So there's a few things with that. I think the first thing is, um, I've, my experience has been that over time that will come if you're training properly uh, pad drills are brilliant for it what one simple pad drill we have is i say to, um, and this is one that the the yellow belts do is you hit the pad three times palm meal palm meal palm meal your partner will drop the pad and then you hit it with a hammer fist and i want you to do that with as much aggression as possible big loud shout on the hammer fist and without exception to start off with people are generally a little bit timid tap 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 and no real ki you get them to do that over a few weeks and the aggression starts to build they start to enjoy it you know one thing we need to remember is that every single one of us is a thoroughbred survivor our, our ancestors have survived wars and famines and all kinds of things they, they survive long enough to have children we're all thoroughbred survivors our instincts are sound if we let them come out we may have social conditioning against aggression and against inappropriate aggression that's obviously useful but there is an appropriate time for aggression and I, I think that's within most of us you know we, we just need to give it a, an outlet to come out so pad drills is one thing that can help uh, a, a drills that encourage adversity is another one drills that are physically demanding that can help because aggression gets you through them 
So if you're doing a very demanding physical drill, some people are able to kind of switch off and go all zen. Very few people can do that. For me, what I do is when when the fatigue hits, the aggression comes out too. And it's not aggression at the, 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 the partner or the pad or the drill. It's self-focused aggression. It's an internalized aggression against the, the, my weaknesses or my, my limits. So again, that aggression can come out through um, hard drills too. Also, just getting people to fake it can work too. So we we do scenario-based drills. And at first, I just give the students just a line. So I just say to them, okay, just say to him over and over again, why are you looking at me? Just do that. So I go, why are you looking at me? Why are you looking at me? Why are you looking at me? And it's without any aggression or thought or anything like that. But when they're doing this with the the downgrades who then start to do these uh, scenarios with uh, back and forth dialogue and they add in the realistic dialogue, you know, and because none of them are actors, but but they start to to do it and they see the downgrades doing it, then naturally they start to copy a little bit. And and as I I joke at seminars, when I watch my downgrades do the scenario drills, I'm sitting there back, oh, this is great. There's character development and there's subplots and, you know, don't stop, don't stop. I want to see how this ends. You know, um, they, they, they do a, a, a good job of, uh, of, of of acting it. The other thing is, you know, find what triggers people have got. So I, I've, I've done this at seminars where I'll show a technique and someone will go, oh, I could never do that. I could never put my thumb in someone's eye or I could never hold someone's throat like that. And um, you just go, okay, you know, so, um, but could you, what if this person was going to harm your child or your mum or your girlfriend or your boyfriend? And generally they'll go, yeah, no problem. I, I could do it then. If someone was trying to harm my child, absolutely I would do this. Great, okay. When you're doing this drill, I want you to imagine that someone's trying to harm your child, you know. Uh, Rory Miller has some lovely drills for this where he does his uh, his one-step drills, which are a work of genius for those who haven't done those. If you, you want to check out, nothing like karate one-steps, by the way. And Rory told me that when he designed these drills, he misunderstood what karate one-steps were but um so he's <laughs> he thought there were the kind of drills that rory does but he has, he has these uh these uh, back and forth slow motion drills and he says right what i want you to do is do do the drill uh, but pretend that you're someone who's trying to coach the other person and now do the drill where you depend that you're someone who's fighting for your life or that if you don't drop this person your child's going to be harmed he says you know do 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 the drill like that you know and, and like and he makes the point he said if you haven't got a personality that's designed for combat then fight with someone else's personality pretend to be somebody else which i thought was a, a f- absolutely fantastic way of expressing it and if you think about it we do that with kata all the time so uh, when when you in kata there's no external opponent but we get used to switching on the the aggression and that fighting spirit or, or we, at least we should do we shouldn't do kata in a dead way we do it with aggression we do it with intent and when we finish the kata we switch it off so you need that ability to be able to switch it on and switch it off if you can't switch it off you're a danger to everyone around you if you can't switch it on you're a danger to nobody so you, you need that ability to be able to switch it on and switch it off uh, without that external stimulus as well you know so um so that you've got some degree of control of it when i when i do cutter it feels internally it feels no different to when i'm sparring i, I feel it i can feel the adrenaline so kata can be a useful way of doing it as well so um yeah lots of different ways you can do it you see i think the other thing is just and also you know sometimes people get a little bit embarrassed doing it or a little bit self-conscious so just let them do it in their own way that to start with that they don't need so if they're trying to play the role of the bad guy and they're doing it with a laugh and a giggle and they're not taking it too seriously don't 
chastise them for it. Go, okay, you know, that was that was all right. That was a good start. But next time, try and do it without the giggle or one less giggle and try and maintain eye contact. And I know you're a nice person and I know you would never do this, but let's just pretend, okay? I just want you to just pretend that you're a, ba- that you're a bad, nasty person. So next time, maybe just do it five decibels higher, you know, just step by step by step. I- I've never had a student yet that I couldn't instill in- aggression into. You know, you could have, have the most uh, gentle, pacifistic kind-hearted soul that you know but but given uh, the right training that, that it comes out and one thing that we've got to acknowledge aggression feels good right not not day-to-day not anger you know that's entirely different not losing your mind that that's not good that never feels good but focused aggression you know letting that uh animalistic side of you out okay you know a controlled and laser focused way i find that to be quite a cathartic and quite a, fo- a positive feeling a joke about this as well is uh, I, I say it's impact therapy we sometimes call it it's one of my um uh, training partners used that phrase he's got quite a stressful job and uh, more than once he's walked into the dojo and i can tell by his demeanor he's had a bad day and he, he looks at me and i look at him i goes bad day at the office he goes yeah i need some impact therapy today right so you know then he whacks the pads and you know gets all it out and oh, feels so much better and it feels good and he feels relaxed you know it's, it's quite cathartic becky knows that about me you know she, she'll tell you this she does it all the time if she can see that ian's having a bad day and ian's getting a bit frustrated and ian's getting to be like a bit like a bear with a sore head he's getting a bit stressed he goes, go train i haven't got time to train i've got this to do i've got that to do i've got to get sure this is ian go and train and as soon as I've thrown some weights about, or I've whacked some pads, or I've grappled with somebody, or something like that, oh man, I feel so much better, you know. So it can be cathartic; it can feel good once uh, once people get into it too. So you know, I hope that that helps, and um, uh, you find some some value in in some of that for for Tim and uh, Paul. Martial arts fun fact one hundred and ninety six: the wooden dummy in Wing Chun is actually meant to represent a tree. While most martial artists wait until the tree has been cut into boards before beating the living daylights out of it, Wing Chun believes that attacking wood while still in tree form is both faster and more efficient. So in this section we're looking at uh, training questions. The first one we've got is from uh, Callum Stewart. He said, uh, how do we stay motivated in karate when we feel that we're not uh, moving forwards or making progress? I I think one thing we need to acknowledge straight away is that that, that's that's pretty normal. There's not something wrong when that happens. I think we all go through periods where we feel that we're not making progress. Now, sometimes that can be because we're legitimately not making progress, and other times it can be just because we perceive that. Our training partners and teachers may feel that we are making progress. They can be looking at us thinking, while we're getting better, it's just that we don't feel it from within. So there's there's two differences there, although the solution to both of them is pretty similar, really. Um, so if we feel that we're not progressing, it, it normally means that training's got a little bit stagnant. Uh, we feel we're doing the same things over and over, and we feel that we're staying at the same point. I always liked Einstein's quote where he said, the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over and expecting a different result. So if, if we're starting to feel that we're, we're not progressing, uh, it, what can be funny is to just, okay, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. I'm going to train and I'm going to move and do something else. So like for, for me, if I feel that, you know, I've been working on a given kata for a while and I feel that it's starting to stagnate a bit, okay, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll keep working on that kata, but not with the same emphasis. I'll put it to one side. I'll go and work on another one or I'll, I'll maybe I'll emphasize working on the punch bag for the next couple of weeks. I'll work on my power generation or maybe I want to work on my flexibility a little bit more you know just switch it up a little bit move to something else 
Uh, whatever it happens to be, something that you feel, yeah, I'm excited about that. And and again, it can be something martial arts related. So you say, right, I'm going to work on my sparring a bit more, on my grappling skills a bit more. Uh, uh, this week, I want to break down this cutter a bit more, or you know, pick pick something martial. It can also be something physical. So yeah, okay, um, I don't feel particularly motivated martially at the moment, but I'm going to try and increase my bench press, or I'm going to uh, increase my time on the rowing machine for a given distance, or what, uh, decrease the time. You can you know, move it over to something else. The important thing is just don't quit, don't stop, just keep training. Uh, just shift training to an, an, another way. If you're finding something has gotten boring and it's got stale, then just move away from that. Move into another element. It's a wonderful thing about karate too. Is there's so many elements to it. If you've got bored punching, work on your kicking. You know, so and, and and there's nothing wrong with doing something for fun. You know, so you go, I'm getting a bit bored with it all. Do you know what? I'm going to learn how to do a leaping, spinning side kick. That's what I'm going to do for the next week. I'm going to break that down on videos. I'm just going to have fun playing with that on the bag. You know, I'm going to just have fun doing martial play, whatever it is that makes it enjoyable again for you. Um, then by all means, you know, just drop onto that and, and and keep keep doing it. But if you feel that you're stagnating, you feel you're not making progress, mix it up a bit. Move 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 on to something else, and that could be something martial or it could be something physical. Um, so, for example, in, in my own training at the moment, I'm really enjoying the weightlifting. You know, that that's um, I, that I dropped off a little bit. You know, I'm still doing it, but not with any great passion. And then, you know, all of a sudden, I think, no, I'm into this again. I'm enjoying this again. And so that that's something that I'm, I'm emphasizing a little bit in my, my training at the moment. Uh, kata-wise, I'm, I'm having great fun kind of working on Chinto kata at the minute. That That's the kata that I'm enjoying practicing and breaking down. So I'm I've, I've emphasizing that one a little bit more. And it'll shift, you know, give it a, a month and I'll be have moved on to another kata. And the rowing machine might be my big thing. Keep doing everything. Don't jump lurch from one side to the other, but alter the mix. So, so again, you know, just, just change the mix of the things that you're doing. If kata's got boring, do a little bit less kata. Still do some kata, do a little bit less kata and maybe do some kion or, you know, do something entirely new. And that way you'll probably find that you'll keep motivated and you'll, you'll find that it'll help you, uh, make progress. Got to enjoy it. Above all else, you've got to enjoy it. If we're not enjoying it, we're not going to make progress at it. So the next question is from uh, Michael Buillo. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing your surname correctly, Michael. Apologies if I'm not. But he said, what advice would you have for karateka who have no school near them but continue to practice on their own? I attended a Shorinrin school for over 10 years but have since moved to a small town where there's no school at all. So if you're forced to train on your own, um, then obviously we've got to find ways to do that. It's, it's far from ideal because it's always... You know, you need a body. For, for motivational and practical purposes, it's good to be training with a group. And it's a martial skill. It's designed to be employed against other human beings. So ideally, we need other human beings to practice on. If, if you haven't got that, um, then obviously there are ways in which you can, can train on your own. So you, you know, do your weightlifting, do your bag work, do your stretching, keep your cardiovascular fitness uh, good, do your shadow sparring, your shadow fighting, do your kata, do your key on. There's lots of things you can do on your own. Uh, I, I would also so uh, try and make sure that you're getting new information in as well. So um, we don't want to plateau. Um, subscribe to good YouTube channels that you like. Um, make sure that you read plenty of stuff. Get information sources so you're not you're not stagnating in any way. Try and get to seminars. You know, if, if there's no school near you, then maybe you could set yourself the goal of going to a seminar every month, every couple of months, so that again you're getting new information and that you are getting people to practice with. Uh, it's not clear from Michael's email whether he means there's no Shorinru school or no school um, 
at all. I think he means no school at all, but if there are other martial arts nearby, maybe go along to them just for the training element of it. So, you know, it doesn't have to be the same style. It could be entirely unrelated. Even if it's a, a school that doesn't really do the kind of martial arts you'd like to do, it's still it's still good to, to get some practice in where you're part of a group, just for the fun and enjoyment of it. So if there's another style of karate, maybe I'll go along there, maybe do some judo, some wrestling, that kind of stuff. Maybe, again, see if you can find any uh, anyone else locally where you can get together for training groups, that kind of stuff. That's where seminars can help. If you get along to a seminar that's not too far away from you and explain that, you know, I live in this town, uh, who'd like to get together and train once every couple of weeks, that kind of stuff, that can help as well. So you, you can train on your own, make it fun and varied, you know, like I say, do your running, do your rowing, do your weightlifting, do your stretching, your kata, your kion, all that kind of fun stuff, that's beneficial and will be helpful. Uh, get lots of information sources, you know, uh, as, as you can. Uh, communicate, get involved with groups online if you can, get yourself along to seminars and See if you can find uh, someone who w- wants to train. You know that happens a lot. I-, I do know a lot of people who get together as as, as training groups. Uh, sometimes as well, people will travel quite a distance, so they make a point of once every month or every couple of months they'll they'll get together and do a full weekend's training together. So th- that might be an option for you as well, Michael. So I hope there's there's some some thoughts in there because uh, for you and others who find themselves in that position, solo training full stop is important. You know, so most of my training will be on my own uh, you know i have group training sessions and partner training sessions every week but but uh, I, I, again you know i train pretty much every day but you know so I, I, generally speaking i weightlift on my own i do my cardiovascular fitness on my own i do a lot of cutter on my own i do on the punch bag on my own so training on your own can help and be a big part of it but it is important to get that partner practicing in two and that new information in two uh, thankfully, in this modern internet age and where seminars are more and more common, that, that's maybe a little bit easier than it was 20 years ago. So I hope there's something in there that's of use. Uh, related question is from Brandon Fields, actually. And he says, what are your thoughts on only being able to train one or two times a month with a teacher that is uh, a long distance uh, if you can't find a dojo locally to train at weekly? Uh, do you see training via Skype or recording videos to submit to your teachers for correction being good as well? So, uh, again, I think in the circumstances, if there's no school near you and you're getting along there uh, once a fortnight or um, once a month, then that's better than no training at all. You take that away and then you work on it. And it, it's it's important to have that, I think. I, certainly, I, I don't think... Uh, videos or uh, Skype or recordings are any substitute for being in a room with somebody. Uh, b- but if that's all you've got uh, and you're using that as a supplement to uh, being in the room training, I, I definitely think that can work. So, and, and I've used that in the past. For example, I, I had a, a gent who uh, did a grading for once. Uh, uh, he wasn't successful in his grading. He didn't, he didn't pass. He lives quite a, a, a way away from me. Uh, on the day of the grading, I told him things, oh, these are the things I think you need to work on to, to improve upon. You know, he was obviously very receptive to that. And then what he did was he recorded videos of himself doing the things that he uh, failed the grading on and he would send them to me. And well, what about this? Is this any better? So I was able to say, well, yeah, that's a bit better. That's more like it. But if you look at, you know, at one minute, 21 seconds here, if you look at your hand position, you can see that's still not quite as we want it. You know, if you look at how you're using your hip on this particular type of punch, maybe we can improve on that. You know, give it a few weeks. He sends me another video. What about this? Yeah, that's a lot better now. And then I went back and we did the grading. And of course, on that one, he passed. So I have used videos as a as a means to, to correct people. 
Um, so I think that you could definitely do that. If you're getting along to a dojo once or twice a month, Brandon, and and within that period, if you're going away working on stuff and submitting videos to your teacher to say, what does this look like? I, I think that can work. Better yet, if you can set up a Skype connection and your teacher's prepared to sit there and see it live and he says, right, I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to do the cat now and I'm going to do this now. That will work. Uh, I have... Again, I have reservations about when people do that entirely. So they say, okay, we teach you remotely and we grade you remotely. And I don't think that really works. I think at some point you do need to be in a room with somebody. So because a lot of martial arts is about feeling. So you need the instructor to grab hold of you and, and do it, you know, so you can feel it uh, being done. You go, yeah, okay, I get what that feels like. And I get that would, would should feel like from, from a partner. So you do need some in the room correction, I think. As a substitute, it doesn't work, but as a supplement to that, I think it can work. Uh, it can work very well. I think it can work well. So we've now got a, a couple of related questions. First one is from Mark S via email. Uh, and uh, Mark said, he goes, if I was to suddenly inherit a control of a club that didn't do much bunkai, how would I best go about bringing a bigger bunkai focus to the club? Uh, and people do find themselves in that position. You know, you can be the second in charge at the club. The instructor moves away for a job or gets an injury or just decides he quits. And then suddenly you're in charge of the group, right? Uh, and maybe if that group hasn't done much bunkai in the past, but that's the direction you want to take it. Well, how do you best go about it? And, and obviously, I've worked with a lot of groups that have that have done that, and the ones that have done it successfully have always done it in a step-by-step measured approach. Uh, and being honest, that's probably in a way that the head of the group would uh, slower than they would like. You know, so they take over the club and they want to be doing that kind of karate instantly. But you've got to remember, you've got to bring the students with you. So, uh, and they, they're so far up a certain ladder. So if you say to them, okay, training's going to change overnight, it's like throwing them back down to the bottom and it undoes all that feeling of progress that the field have made. So the, the, the trick is to do it very gradually. So for example, if you're at a club that's done no bunkai, like a 3K club, right? You may say, right, well, we've done the kata and for five minutes tonight, let's do an application for shutuki because the knife hand appears in lots of different kata. So let's do some basic application. And you just do that for a little while and the students get used to that. They get comfortable with it. Then they get good at it. And you say, right, okay, n- now that we've done that, maybe we'll look at this move too. And, and we've, once we've done that for a while, again, they get used to doing it. And then you introduce like, okay, as well as sparring at a distance with punches, I'd like to start doing a little bit of grappling. So here's a little playing for grip drill. And what you find is when you do this gradually, people like it because it's something new and it's something fresh and it's something exciting and over time then you start saying okay for the next grading I want you to do one piece of bunkai you can choose which piece you like and from the kata just one just you know so no big change no radical change for the grading criteria we're just going to add in this one thing and you know and over year as the years go by then you'll end up breaking the kata down more or less completely and uh, I think of a, a group a club that I, I've worked with in Scotland uh, I, I go up there and do the grading exams for them and review the syllabus and that's what they've done every year uh, they've taken one step closer to being where they want to be they've t- tweaked the grading syllabus a little bit and 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 that's that's the way to do it so gradually would be the, the key thing to that because then the students will enjoy it and it'll be something fresh and you won't overload them and, and we have a related uh, question from uh, brian uh, who came in via email and he said uh, his, his main issue is that his teacher and those he, he, he trains with are pretty dogmatic uh, he says, I really enjoy training with them and they're like a second family, so I don't want to cut any ties. That being said, I also see a lot of the reasons behind what 
we do what we do as being falsehoods and misconceptions. Uh, have you ever worked or been able to bring material into an environment like this? Uh, now, now I, I personally haven't because I've always had a fairly positive, open-minded environment, but, but I know a lot of people uh, have that. See, and Brian raises a really good point too. If you're, I, if you're enjoying training with people and they're good people and you're enjoying hanging out with them, that, that shouldn't be thrown out because they're not doing exactly the kind of karate that you want to do. If you're getting a good workout, it's good for your health and you're learning good kata and good kion and all that kind of stuff and you're having a fun spa, whatever form that sparring may be, then great, that's lovely. Now, now obviously, if you're not the head of that group and, and you find they are fairly dogmatic and you want to move, uh, hopefully introduce... Um, some more bunkai into that group. Again, the trick is to do it gradually and, and to have some uh, respect for those in authority. So if you start trying to undermine the head guy, you know, if you, you know, this is nonsense, we shouldn't be doing this, we should be doing this, you, you're generally going to get pushback based on ca- uh, character, personality clashes, generally speaking, and an undermining of the hierarchy it may not have anything to do with the content. But, but, um, if, if you do things gradually, and so you go, um, you know, I, I've, uh, we do the kata this way, and we do our bunkai this way, you know, in this formal way, and, you know, I love training here, and I like doing that, but I've seen this stuff on YouTube, you know, what, what do you think of that? Just show them it, you know, um, now it might be the instructor goes, I hate it, I see no value in that, it's ridiculous. You go, oh, well, thanks, well, I just wanted your opinion. You know what I mean? Do it that way. Then, you know, next, give it a month. Then, then, you know, you might try again with, you know, uh, what about this one here? You know, we do our kata this way. And I've noticed the way we do our kata could be really effective when we apply it this way. What do you think about this? And you just, you just keep dropping it in. Generally, I think the material is often strong enough that people logically and practically are open to it. The, the reason they tend to reject it is they feel it's some kind of threat to what they do. So if you introduce it as a gradual way, uh, you'll find that most people are more receptive to it. Of course, some people are never going to be. But if you do it in that gradual step-by-step way, not trying to convert them in the instance, just say, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? This is a nice drill and it would seem to really fit our kata. And maybe this is a way we can make our kata be you know, more effective and th- that kind of stuff. Uh, I, for example, I know a, a guy who's, um, he was uh, not the head of a group, but relatively he's a downgrade within the group. And what he started doing was he started asking the, the, the teacher, he said, um, do you mind if I start teaching some uh, alternative bunkai too? So obviously we've got our set bunkai and I would like to show this stuff as, as an alternative, just as something a little bit different, something extra. And the instructor looked at it and he was a little bit hesitant, but said, yeah, okay, you can do a little bit of that. So he'd start teaching practical bunkai, but he was clearly labelled it as an alternative bunkai. It wasn't to supersede anything, just do it as an alternative. So he'd do a little bit of it and the students warmed to it. And then he said, oh, students seem to like it. Maybe could I do a little bit more of that alternative bunkai with them again? So as the years roll by and this drip by drip thing, eventually what became the alternative became the mainstream bunkai and the old impractical stuff got dropped out. But again, it was done gradually. So I would say, Brian, value what you've got. There's obviously some good stuff going on in there. There are good people giving you good workout and you enjoy the company and that's valuable. So keep doing that anyway. And I would introduce it in suggestions to the, the other students. Do it in a way that's re, uh, respectful of the higher hierarchy do it in a step-by-step way do it in a way where you're not trying to undermine it if they are going to be open to it that's the best way to get them to look at it if they're never going to be open to it maybe just ask some of the club members look i was thinking of doing some extra training for this kind of stuff maybe you'd like to get together once a week once a fortnight to run this other stuff too in addition to all the great stuff we do within the club that could be your, your plan b option for you too 
Next uh, question, Stephen Bertram. He, he asked that he often sees people with uh, good tactics but not good technique and or good structure but the inability to apply it. And he wants to know he's like, how do we emphasise these various elements, the strategy, the tactics, the structure, the dynamics, the skills, etc., uh, to ensure that we get the best possible results. And, and I think the key thing is that we should do that all the time. We should never go, okay, here's a lesson on strategy or here's a lesson on structure or that kind of stuff. When, when we teach, all of those things should be present all the time. So if we do a given uh, drill, we explain, okay, these are the strategies and tactics at work. This is the structure that you're going to need to get it to work. These are the body dynamics. These are the techniques. These are the alignments that you, you, you need to consider. Uh, the best thing we can do is integrate them on, on everything we do. So, and, and for, for example, you know, I'm, I, I do this all the time. So I think the opening move of Pinan Godan. Is the example that's jumping to mind. So if I'm teaching the application to that, partner uh, grabs me with one hand, I pin their hand, I move to a 90 degree angle because the cat's at 90 degrees. My forearm hits their forearm, which knocks them off balance and brings the head forwards. My forearm strikes into their neck. I then grab their arm as I punch across the jaw. The punching hand goes to the top of the head as the other hand uh, goes to the chin. I then step in and do a neck crank. That's the first three moves, right? While I'm teaching that, would be, okay, the first thing we're going to do is the partner grabs, so we need to move offline. This is a tactical consideration here. I need to keep my enemy in front of me, but I don't want to be in front of my enemy. I move towards what I know and what I don't know. So in there, there's a strategy in the tactics. I then from there here, I drop my body weight down into the cat stance. The reason I'm doing that is to get my body weight into the technique. So we start talking about the structure and the efficient use of body weight. I then hit the arm here. This exposes this area on the base of the neck. I can come through and hit here. I then drive the hip forwards as I catch the arm. Tactically, I'm still got my hand on the arm so I can feel where it is and what it's doing as I strike the side of the jawline. So again, we're talking about the weaknesses. I then from there, put my hand on the top of the head. I'm continuing to maintain the advantage. This is tactical. I then take hold of the head and then twist to get the neck crank on. This will move him round and due to his physiology, he'll move himself into this and we'll throw him. If he doesn't throw him, then I can elbow him in the face, yada, yada, yada. So I don't just go, here's the technique and describe the technique. I'm always saying, here's why we do the technique. Here's the strategies, the tactics, the principles that make the technique work. And you need to do that. And if you do that on every single technique that you do, every single drill that you do, the students start to become very aware of the common threads. And, and this is part of what Stephen mentioned in his email. He said that uh, sometimes he sees people who can't adapt to new situations. And, and the reason they often can't adapt to new situations is because they've never moved beyond the specifics. They learn a technique, but they don't understand the principles that give rise to that technique. Technique is limited finite principles are, are unlimited you can apply principles in an infinite number of ways uh, and tactics in an infinite number of ways uh, strategies in an infinite number of ways so if, if people start to see these uh, common threads that's when it, they become adaptable because the those principles those concepts those uh, whatever word you want to use they become habitual so therefore we naturally fight in in, in accordance uh, with them so my, my key thing would be we want to integrate in everything we do always teach in an integrated way if we want uh, integrated action uh, where the strategies the principles the techniques the tactics all of it come together in a whole we need to teach them as a whole in order to get that martial arts fun fact 27 Judo was originally designed as a method to get the children of samurai out of their pyjamas so they could get to school on time. So this next set of questions is about uh, teaching children. So I've got one from uh, Nolene Sprouse and that came in by email and asked if I exclusively teach adults or do I teach young children in my dojo as well. 
Uh, so we at the moment we don't teach anyone uh, younger than 14 so uh, we, we don't teach children um, although we may be changing that and I'll, I'll come to that in a second so uh, Nolan goes on because I ask because uh, younger than a certain age much of the depth of bunk eye is lost on children at what age do you think it is appropriate to begin that instruction and what do you recommend instead for those who are younger uh, I have a seven-year-old son that loves karate, but he struggles to retain much beyond Keon for now. So this is one of these things where I, I had my mind changed, right? So I, a, a guy made a, an argument to me. I thought, you know what? You're completely right. I, I, I buy your way of thinking on this. So uh, as 14 is the youngest we will take them. So we're, we're looking for the, um, you know, the older teens and adults. I, I think the average age of my class would be, you know, we've got people in 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, that, that, that kind of couple, couple in the 60s. So average age is, is, is probably the 30s, early 40s in my class. So mainly adults. We have one or two uh, teens, but, but not that many. And, um, uh, the reason I did that is because I, I wanted to teach uh, what I felt was, uh, proper karate you know that's not to denigrate children's karate but it was a kind of karate that interested me I, d I didn't want to teach anything else i love teaching kids by the way i really enjoy working with kids but at this time i'd done done that for a while i thought no i just want to have a couple of sessions uh, each week where me and a group of adults get together and we train and teach the kind of karate that, that really appeals to me that, that i want to do so i, I didn't teach kids and then I'm having a discussion with this guy one day, and he says, well, why don't you teach kids? You know, And I, I said, well, I says, because I want to teach them proper karate. And he says, well, I want to teach them proper karate too. He says, but I teach kids. He says, now, of course, he says, what I do is that kid who's six years old who wants to start karate, he comes into my dojo, and I, I start preparing him, and I teach him movement skills, and I, I teach him his forms, and he understands his forms, and I teach him some basics, and he learns all these things. And then by the time he gets up to like 14, 15, 16, he's got all of these skills, he's got all of that knowledge, and I can now start to teach him real karate. I spend those, those first few years getting him ready to learn that stuff and having fun along the way and learning useful skills. He says, your problem is, he says, the 14-year-old is fine, but the 7-year-old kid who says, oh, I want to start karate. So his mum can't bring him to your class because you won't accept him. So he goes to some other class, which, like, just, you know, isn't very good or he doesn't enjoy it, uh, in, in which case, you know, the kid may quit. Or if he does enjoy it, he'll start training with them and you'll never see them. He says, so what you want to be doing with the children, he says, is bring them in, he says, and get them ready to learn real karate. Don't say, I, I, you know, I'm not teaching kids. And I thought he's absolutely right. You know, he's, he's absolutely right. That, that's, that's the mistake that I, that I was making. So we are looking to design a children's uh, syllabus um, and have a small children's component going. Just so, again, you know, we're giving the children in the local area something to do. But also we're getting uh, some of those will go on to train as adults and we'll get them ready to learn the karate as we want to do it. But I won't be teaching them the kind of stuff the adults do. So I, I won't be teaching them, like, as, as Nolan's completely correct, um, a lot of the in-depth bunker is completely lost on them. So we follow the point that my friend made, is that we get them ready to learn real karate. So again, if they're seven-year-old, uh, and Nolan mentions that uh, he's struggling uh, to uh, sons are struggling to retain much beyond Keon. Well, that's what you should be doing. Just do the Keon. Learn how to move properly. Learn the cattle. Learn the solo form. If you do any bunkai at all, just do it very simple stuff. You know, just like here's a hikate. You can pull the arm down. You can land a punch over the top. Keep it very simple, very basic. Keep it safe. No strangles. No joint locks. You know, none of the big, high, dangerous throws. Um, uh, just keep it age appropriate. Let them have fun doing it. Let them have good exercise doing it. Uh, let them enjoy the martial arts. Let them make progress um, in, in it and then get them ready to learn the, the, the adult karate later on. So uh, um, 
Nolan's thinking is pretty much in line uh, with my own. So I, 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 that's what I'd be doing. I'd be getting, teach some children's karate in such a way it gets them ready to learn uh, adult karate. Not, not, don't make it a dead end. You know, make sure that you've got a view to taking them on to learning it as a, as an adult later on. Um, and, and this um, relates to a question from uh, uh, Brian Crichton as well. He says, should there be an age limit for being awarded a credible black belt in karate, i.e. over 16? And my answer is yes, and, and in a lot of organisations there is. So the organisation that I belong to is the British Combat Karate Association, um, which is in turn affiliated to the EKF and the English Karate Federation, which goes all the way up to the WKF. And the, throughout all those organisations, every step of the way in their policies, it says that no one can be a first down under the age of 16. 16 is the minimum age you can be a, a, a first down. So um, that, and again, for that reason, it's just not credible to have anything younger than that. Having said that, I understand that obviously there's a lot of children training these days, and gradings are as important as they can be for adults. Grading and rank recognition are even more important for kids. I think the danger we have is when we start giving kids first down, second down, third downs. That that, that we shouldn't be doing that. I think under 16 years of age. I think what would be better if we, as a lot of places do, we go like, we have things like we have a junior black belt, okay, or a, a cadet black belt. We, uh, and again, and that would slot into the adult syllabus at some point, but it wouldn't be the equivalent of an adult black belt. Because obviously a 10-year-old black belt is not the equivalent of a 18-year-old first down. It's just ridiculous to suggest they are in terms of effectiveness, level of technique, maturity. There's all kinds of, of reasons why you wouldn't want to be doing that. So I, I, and the way that I intend to do it when we get our kids thing up and going is that will be the highest they'll be able to go. We'll be do um, like a, a black belt, which I'm, I'm hesitant to even call it a first down, but they'll have a, a, have a black belt, which will have a white stripe straight through the middle of it. Uh, and when they turn 16, that will jump across to the equivalent of roughly like a, an adult fourth queue. You know, so the children will be aware that the, the, the grading syllabus for the kids is entirely separate to the grading syllabus for the adults and that they are not equivalents. It's just completely separate. And, and I think that's a better way to do it. And I've seen some schools who do that. So they have a ranking system for their four-year-olds up to their eight-year-olds and they have a ranking system for their eight-year-olds to the 12-year-olds and they have another ranking system for 12-year-olds to 16-year-olds and they have the adult one. Uh, and there's no reason why it has to be the same. You know, I mean, you can have it have entirely different criteria that's age appropriate, and then as they get older, well, you just slot them across onto the appropriate level. You see, so, um, but I, I, it always makes me cringe when you hear these newspaper stories of you know eight year old fifth dans and stuff. It's, it's, yeah, it's worrying, and I, I think sixteen um, year olds for a, a, a legitimate first dan, if that makes sense. I think that's a minimum. And then below that, we can have black belts, if you like. But again, it should be acknowledged that these are children's black belts and they are not the equivalent of, of senior ones, would be my own personal take on that. Uh, the next question comes from Jose by uh, email. Uh, didn't have a surname, but he said, uh, as a 41-year-old karateka, I'd love to see more adults practicing karate and martial arts in general. Uh, my question is, why do you think nowadays most karate students are children and teenagers instead of adults? And I, I think that's dead simple. It's because most dojos teach uh, a form of karate that is appropriate for 
uh, children and teenagers and the adults don't want to do that form of karate that, that's the point and, and as I've just mentioned I think it's important that the kids have that I think it's good that the kids have that there's lots of real positive benefits children can get through martial arts training and it shouldn't be the same as what the adults are doing but if you want uh, adult students then what you need to do is teach an adult form of karate so we, we have no issue with this we, our club is fairly healthy we, you know, we don't promote it massively but we, we, we when we do we get adult members joining uh, they turn up in a dojo where they're not training alongside children it's an adult syllabus uh, catered towards adult they're learning adult level skills and it's been taught in an adult way and obviously as adults they respond uh, well to that as an interesting thing obviously on, on facebook i can't remember the exact numbers but i've got around about twenty-five thousand likes something like that on facebook and as uh, on my page on my facebook page uh, and you can look at that page and obviously it gives you the statistics of, of the, the breakdown of, of people that have liked the page you know so on average how old are they what sex are they where, which part of the world are they from and the majority of people who like my page are 35 year olds and older you know vast majority very few uh, under 35s looking at my page majority will be in their 40s and I, I would bet that most of the people listening to this will be around the same age as well see because it's because this type of karate appeals to uh, to a adults um uh, particularly adults of that age you know so the, the, t- the kids want to do kids karate the 20 the somethings want to do something really competitive prove themselves you know compete uh, you know i get that completely as you get a bit older you know you've got a family you want to focus more on the self-defense side of things protecting you and yours um health as well you know becomes an issue in your 20s you're indestructible when you move into your 40s and stuff you think okay i have to start training smart so it doesn't surprise me that a bunkai based approach to karate is very popular with those people um so i'll suggest that if we want more adults to practice karate what schools need to do is teach adult karate alongside the um uh, the kids stuff as well you see i think i think that's what we need to do so the next question is from uh, Jason Kiefer, who you'll all know if you've watched uh, my YouTube videos. Jason's an on a lot of the videos, uh, particularly the ones I've done in the US. And uh, he asks, uh, what would, uh, different drills would I recommend for teaching kids? And he specifically asks, uh, would verbal de-escalation be something that I would teach to children? So I, for the st- I think children should be taught self-defense, but in, in a way that's age-appropriate. Uh, and there's no better guy for this than Jamie Club. If you if you want to teach uh, legitimate self defence to the children of your in your school and classes, uh, use Jamie as your model. So I've got a podcast coming up soon where me and Jamie uh, have a chat. It's like a two hour long conversation. So that'll be a nice long podcast. And there's a big section on uh, children's self protection in that. So I won't really preempt any of that now. Uh, but Jamie's got a book out at the moment called uh, an ebook called um, uh, When Parents Aren't Around. So a, a d- book designed for parents and children for, for self-defense, you know, uh, learning to keep themselves safe from, from threats in a way that's uh, age-appropriate uh, and, and real, too. Because it's just, you know, the stranger danger stuff, it rhymes and sounds good, but it's, it's got no real teeth to it and doesn't really reflect things. A lot of the things that we, we, we taught are, are, are not good. J- Jamie's book has got some excellent drills to teach kids. And, and verbal de-escalation is something I would be teaching as part of that, um, how to, you know, talk to other kids you know the kind of um, to 
calm situations down if they can but also just make, making children uh, be able to communicate effectively making them confident to be able to uh, walk up to people if they feel threatened and, and to seek help and all this kind of stuff so uh, but you need to check out jamie's stuff because he, he's the man for this knows way more about it than anyone else i've ever came across and um, if you want to hear a great deal of information about that that'll be coming up in the forthcoming podcast i put out of that uh, of that interview or conversation that jamie and i um jamie and i had the next question is from Fleming Anderson, and he asks, does being a parent change the way that you would look at karate in self-defense? Uh, what's the difference before and after having a child? And, and I think the key word in that is self. You know, I, I think, you know, as, a, as from my case, as a 20-something, you know, before I had kids, then it was, that's what it was. I, was. I had me to defend. That was it. You know, not as soon as, of course, you develop a family. Well, okay, I've got others to protect now. So it's not just about self-defense anymore. It's also about protecting other people. So it changes your perspective that, that little bit. And also, of course, and imparting within people good personal security habits, good awareness habits, and, and things that they would need to protect themselves. You know, uh, Becky's my partner. She's a lifelong martial artist. She's more than capable of looking uh, after herself, you know. Um, but we've both agreed that when Evelyn's old enough, you know, she's our daughter, she'll be learning martial arts. She'll be learning to do it. So she, she's more aware and she's more capable of, of protecting herself. And uh, we want that for her. And, and in my own dojo, of course, we also practice uh, defending others. I think the word self-defense can sometimes be a little bit misleading. If you were with a loved one and a situation happened, then obviously you need to be able to protect the other person. And that takes us back to Ankuitosu's first precept of his 10 precepts. So Itosu is the creator of the Pinan Hian series. He said, um, karate is not only practiced for your benefit, it can be used to protect one's family or master. So strictly speaking, karate is not self-defense alone, although that's part of it. It's also about protecting others. So we have drills that we do for gradings and self-defense drills where we practice defending other people. And we practice getting uh, people to safe areas and getting them out of, out of dangerous situations uh, in a realistic way. You know, so that's, um, so that, that'll be the key thing, I think. And I think most people who are parents listening to this will, will relate to that. As soon as you've got others to protect, you think, okay, I need to be able to protect that person. And I need to be able to uh, have the skills or be able to communicate the skills to them so they can protect themselves too. So that's that's definitely something that uh, that I'll be doing. And I say we do practice protecting others in the dojo, and I think everyone should do that. Okay, so that's the uh, teaching children section. Martial arts fun fact 143. General Choi was inspired to create Taekwondo after watching a fight between a group of carpenters and a group of circus acrobats. Seeing how the acrobats flamboyantly destroyed the wooden tiles thrown at them with kicks, flips and twirls, General Choi was inspired to create an entirely new ancient martial art. So we've got quite a few questions around the subject of uh, self-defence for women, female self-defence. Uh, one thing I obviously need to say from the onset is that I'm not female. I don't believe I'm the best guy to... Uh, talk about this stuff and one thing I, I observe generally is we need a lot more female self-defense instructors um, there's, there's, if you look at most of the people who are teaching like practical self-defense it's mainly men but, but, but by, a, by a significant margin and it shouldn't be 
Uh, we, I know there's, there's, there's lots of good female martial artists out in there, um, lots to say on the subject of self-defense. And I think obviously they're in on a much better position to talk about female self-defense than, than, than the males are. That doesn't mean men can't teach women self-defense. I mean, obviously they can and women can teach men self-defense too. But, but I, I think it would help. The balance is definitely off. You know, if you think, you know, half the world is male and half the world is female, well, that's not how it looks when we look at martial arts instructors and, and, and self-defense instructors specifically. Most of them are men. And, and as a result of that, there is an inherent male bias to the way that self-defense is largely taught and the information out there. So if you're a, um, a female self-defense instructor, um, I, I would really encourage you to get out there and share your work because the community needs you. And I know there are some good people out there doing some great stuff, but we need we need more, I think. Um, so for what it's worth, you know, I'll give my uh, my, my thoughts on on these issues. Uh, so the first one, uh, Gretchen Carlson uh, wrote to me and she said whether I'd care to weigh on in on the subject of the female MMA fighter uh, versus the so-called uh, internet troll. So this is uh, there's a fight happening apparently where uh, Anna Dempster, the female MMA fighter, is taking on a guy who uh, on the internet had been saying, well, this is what he said. I'm, I'll quote it. Right? Uh, he said, "99 percent of women are too weak and lack the reflexes to do enough damage to stop 99 percent of men. Even if they knew Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they just don't have the size or strength to use the hold. It's dangerous to teach any woman to try and strike or fight a man. Just my two cents." And he said a few other bits and pieces. So that there was a, a group on the internet. Who went okay well, well we'll challenge you to that you know we'll, we'll female mma practitioner willing to take you up on that offer w- around your weight would you take that fight and apparently he has and apparently it's going to happen so so she wanted to know if i wanted to weigh in on this so um <laughs> the other answer is no i don't but you ask so i will you know i, I won't turn any question down uh, obviously I- i'm of the view that the the so-called internet troll is completely wrong you know i mean it's, it's like that, that, that there are women in this world that are way more dangerous than, than men of this world I think the issue is is physical size and strength right so and, and we can't deny it plays a part there's a reason we have weight categories in combat sports you know it's it definitely does play a part if you're physically bigger and physically stronger that does give you an advantage now good technique gives you an advantage and aggression gives you an advantage as well but but physical size and strength do give you an advantage and it would be fair to say that men are generally physically bigger than women so therefore you know generally speaking a physically bigger male will do better well, that's discounting uh, level of technique, level of aggression, level of uh, level of competence. You know that that's a thing. So if you've got like an equally uh, uh, physically sized male fighting a, a female of the same size, so male or female of the same size, I don't think it matters what sex they are. I, I can't see that making any significant difference. Um, I, I believe that you know the woman can be every bit as effective as the male. In terms of the point, I just think it's utter nonsense. Uh, we do have women that defend themselves effectively on on a regular basis. Women can definitely be very effective against men. Size and strength uh, play uh, an, an issue, but if you had an equally matched physical uh, physical size, male against female, I don't think the sex makes any difference whatsoever. I think the physical size can make a difference, but the the gender won't 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 make a difference at all. As regards uh, this notion of the, the, the fight that's happening, I'm sure it'll put him in his place. Maybe not a great idea to have the fight. The, the other thing that we just did as, as an aside to this is that you can't deny that um, female MMA has done wonders for, for female martial arts as well. Um, see, I can remember uh, when the first uh, women boxers started appearing on the scene and it was it, there was 
in the mainstream media, you know, it was, oh, women shouldn't be doing this kind of thing, and, you know, and it was just kind of accepted that that was an acceptable view, you know. Uh, and, and then th- female MMA comes on and shows that, you know, women can fight. The idea of them being uh, the weaker sex is just not true. As You know, I've sparred with enough women to know this, <laughs> as, as anyone else has, you know what I mean? It, it, it doesn't make that great a difference. It really does not. Um, so yeah, that's probably all I've got to say on that one. I'll be interested to see what the result of that fight is, but I'm pretty sure that the trained woman will beat the living daylights out of the untrained guy. The fact that he's male is not as important as the fact that she's skilled and conditioned. So the next question is from Ali Whittock, and he asks, uh, information pertaining to Northern Ireland, England and Wales crime statistics. It says, in 2016, 113 women were killed by men. 92.1% of women murdered knew their killer. What can we do as self-protection teachers to firstly help reduce this violence and secondly address this specific situation statistic? Now, obviously, uh, this is a very important issue and the crime stats tend to be fairly consistent on this as well. So um, if you think that, generally speaking, the most likely way for men or women to be killed in the UK is to be stabbed. If we take that out, um, the most likely way for a man to be killed is he'll be kicked and punched to death by someone he doesn't know in or around somewhere that serves alcohol. Uh, for a woman, she's more likely to be strangled to death by uh, typically a partner uh, in her own home. So uh, again, it's very, very different. And this is why we see when men teach, uh, you know, street fighting and in a bar fight, what they're, they're doing is they're, they're uh, looking at it from a male-centric perspective. And obviously domestic abuse uh, would come into the, the remit. Of course, men can suffer from domestic abuse too, but generally speaking, it, 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 the trend is, is more that it's more likely to be a woman. Uh, in terms of what we can do, the, I think the only thing we can do is, is tr- treat it in the same way we teach anything else, you know, as in, okay, these are the warning signs of this kind of violence. In the same way we teach it for, for, for men in other scenarios, things to look out for, awareness and warning signs, we also need to include as part of our self-protection teaching the warning signs of an abusive relationship, you know, so if a partner is uh, controlling, demands to know where you, you are all the time, uh, demands who you can mix with, what, what, how you can dress, you know, makes you uh, belittle you, humiliate you, all these kind of things. Anybody doing these kind of things, it's a warning sign that this is not an acceptable um, relationship. This is not a relationship that you should want to be in. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean it's a woman's fault for being in that relationship. We've all ended up in relationships we shouldn't have been in. And if uh, there's any abuse going on, then the blame for that solely lies at the door of the abuser. You know, the same way with, with normal crime. You know, if, if I fail to spot the, the um, a mugging taking place or, or and I ended up getting mugged, it's not my fault. You know what I mean? It's it's the mugger's fault. So in teaching things to look out for, we're not saying it's your obligation to avoid this. We're just saying that these are things that can help you avoid it. Um, but it is not your fault if you fail to do so, you know, or, 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 the, or the person was, you know, manipulative enough. And again, you know, this is one of the things we need to remember that a lot of people can be very, very manipulative. And um, no one's at fault for getting taken in by a manipulative uh, person. But I'd say that's the one. In terms of self-protection structures we can do, you know, we're obviously a very small part of it. It's a very complicated issue, a very sensitive issue but the one thing that self-protection teachers should be doing is be including um, these warning signs for domestic violence as well as part of our self-protection instruction, which again I do do when I when I go into the local schools and I'm giving self-protection courses to the you know, like 16, 17, 18 year old girls, that's definitely something we touch on at that point, you know, um, these are the kind of things you should be watching out for and again just to make clear, not because you know it's your job to avoid these things, it's obviously you know we shouldn't live in a world where these things happen and the onus is on the person uh, the abuser the abuser is responsible for the abuse
issues. But if you can spot these warning signs coming early enough, then you may be in a position where you can extradite yourself from that relationship before it escalates. So very sensitive issue, very difficult issue, but I think that's a thing. We need to make sure that uh, um, domestic abuse isn't uh, neglected in our self-protection teaching. And this relates as well to uh, Nico Catone's question, which again comes in by email. He said a couple of uh, words of what uh, I think is important for women's self-defence and where I see the key differences. And, and that, that they would be the key differences. It's not martial arts in genes. We need to be looking at these self-protection issues in its widest sense. And that includes looking at domestic violence and dysfunctional relationships. And we, and we need that, that to be addressed. And again, this relates back to why we need more female self-protection instructors. Because the balance is definitely off at the moment. Um, yeah, so I hope that's some food for thought, you know, and I say if there are um, any women listening to this who, you know, have important things to say on this, then I would encourage you to share. We need we need more uh, women making sure that these, these issues are addressed because it is uh, male-centric at the moment and that's that's not good. That needs correcting. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found it uh, interesting. Tomorrow we'll be back with the final part, which is the general questions across training questions, the pressure point questions, and the miscellaneous questions. So thank you very much for your support of the podcast, particularly thanks to everyone who submitted the questions, and I'll see you tomorrow with more. Okay, Take care. Bye-bye now.